Last week we talked about the ghosts of scandals past and how they were still knocking around today. And those scandals have cast very long shadows over the last seven days in Irish politics. And I'm going to be honest, it hasn't been much fun to report on, but it has been important. I'm Gavin Riley, and that was The Week. This week's been dominated by two scandals relating to Ireland's past, so let's start with mother and baby homes. Now, if you heard last week's podcast, and to be honest, even if you didn't, you'll probably be more than familiar with what's been discovered in a former septic tank at a mother and baby home in Toome. It was announced last Friday, and it's cast a shadow over the week that followed, most notably when Enda Kenny took to the dole to make his first public reply on Tuesday afternoon. Toome is not just a burial ground. It's a social and cultural sepulchre. That's what it is. Because as a society, uh, in the so-called good old days, we did not just hide away the dead bodies of tiny human beings. We dug deep and we dug deeper still to bury our compassion, to bury our mercy, to bury our humanity itself. You see, no nuns broke into our homes to kidnap our children. We gave them up to what we convinced ourselves was the nuns' care. We gave them up maybe to spare them the savagery of gossip, the wink and the elbow language of delight in which the holier than thous were particularly fluent. And we gave them up because of our perverse, in fact, morbid relationship with what you call respectability. And for a while indeed it seemed as if in Ireland our women had the amazing capacity to self-impregnate. And for their trouble, we took their babies and we gifted them or we sold them or we trafficked them or we starved them or we neglected them or we denied them to the point of their disappearance from our hearts and from our sight, from our country and in the case of Tume and possibly other places, from life itself. Yes, we're all shocked now. We're all shocked now. And if the fruit of her religious and social transgression could be discarded, what treatment was meted out to the transgressor herself. So we better deal with this now, because if we don't, another Taoiseach, some other Taoiseach, will be standing here in 20 years saying, if only we knew then, if only we had done then, but his or her then is our now, and now we do know, and now we have to do, all of us in this house Together. No doubt it's a very impassioned speech, and to his credit, Enda Kenny gives this kind of speech very well. It was a contemplated, well-thought-out, angry-without-being-hot-headed, articulate response. It was the sort of perfectly spot-on speech that Kenny has perhaps only delivered once before in his time as Taoiseach, back in 2011, when the very same judge, Yvonne Murphy, reported on clerical child abuse, and he gave a speech lambasting the Vatican for overseeing such a regime. But there were a few things that could be quibbled with in Kenny's remarks, but the biggest one was that, for the time being at least, it wasn't being backed up by action. Six years ago, when he was giving his previous speech, Kenny was speaking after a report had been finalised. The action itself was finished, it was then just a case of digesting the findings. But this time around, Kenny was only giving a scripted speech after Fianna Falls' Micheál Martin had asked what exactly we were going to do about Tume. As I say, it reveals an appalling attitude to women and to the, to the stigma that was associated with women becoming pregnant outside of 
uh, marriage and, and so forth, and also the treatment of children, but also the phenomenon of institutionalisation, the dangers of institutionalisation as a means of addressing uh, issues. We had it in our mental health institutions for decades. We had it in the industrial schools, and now clearly in the mother and baby homes. I think, Tishik, will you confirm that you intend on behalf of all of us and on behalf of the state to issue a formal state apology to all of those affected by such practices? Kenny, in actual fact, was short on answers. He talked about the need not to rush into a decision on what should happen next, the need to reflect now and consult everyone on the most compassionate and humane response. Pierce Doherty, speaking in Irish, because Tuesday was the annual law on the Gaelga in the Dáil, had some concrete proposals on what should happen now. I'll translate in just a moment. So, uh, he is a real character. will <laughs> Basically, Doherty is asking for the Commission to investigate all mother and baby homes and all so-called county homes. They, by the way, tended to be even harsher than mother and baby homes. You only tended to end up there if you were considered a repeat offender, if you'd had a second pregnancy without a husband. Only a sample of four county homes are actually being looked at by the Commission. Kenny's response was that the coroner and the guardie are independent and it's up to them to decide what to do in the first instance about inquiring into Tume and about how those bodies ended up in the ground. But as regards expanding the terms, he suggested that he was actually reluctant to cut across an inquiry that's already up and running. So while he wants to reflect and consider what's best, it seems his own gut instinct is not to do anything further. Breed Smith of People Before Profit, meanwhile, questioned the whole narrative that society itself was responsible. She also noted that on Monday, just three days after the remains in Tume were being confirmed, Michael Noonan had appeared with the Bon Secours, who ran the Tume home as they reopened the former Barrington's Hospital in Limerick. At the same time, your minister, Michael Noonan, stood outside the old Barrington's Hospital in Limerick, welcoming the new addition to the Bon Secours Empire, the biggest private hospital empire in this country, And I want to argue that that empire was built on the bones of the dead tomb babies. And Taoiseach, I'm sick of listening to ministers, including Minister Coveney on the radio last weekend, saying that we are all responsible for what happened in tomb, that we are all responsible for the legacy. That is not the case. What happened in Tume was paid for by the state, a headage payment, as if they were cattle or sheep for each child. The mothers who, put their ch- who were forced to go in there, or their mothers who put them in there, didn't ask for them to be starved to death, to be neglected to death, to be buried unbeknownst them, or indeed to be trafficked to America. On this part, Andy Kenny's response was fair, but perhaps ill-advised. The Bon Secours hospitals in this country uh, have given... Uh, thousands of instances of exceptional care for people and patients who needed them. Um, clearly the situation in Tume is a case that's the subject of a commission of investigation. Um, serious numbers of, of, uh, of babies and young children remains have been uncovered. Um, I think it's important, Deputy Smith, uh, to allow the independent commission which was set up by this Arachthus 
uh, to uh, do its work. The whole affair was also raising eyebrows in the Shannon. Jared Crockwell, who was raised in the area, recalled how its residents were treated. I was brought up in Galway in the 1960s under the tyranny of the famous Bishop Brown where young girls that found themselves pregnant were sent away on holidays and when they came back they weren't pregnant anymore. Can we even stop to think about the pain those women are going through today, wondering was their child buried in tomb or was the child sent somewhere else for adoption? There isn't a member of this house or any other house or any establishment in this country that has not been touched by this dirty little secret. Because that's what it was, a dirty little secret. I am aware in my own family of a farm being taken off a girl simply because she happened to become pregnant after her husband died and the children sent to orphanages. This is the country we lived in. This is the kind of country we lived in. And it's time we pulled back the covers and had a look at what went on in this dirty little country. By the following day, the Taoiseach's words were still being digested because there were, after all, other points of concern in what he'd said. Independent TD Catherine Connolly, who represents Galway West, not a million miles from Tume, had some issues too. What is shocking to the survivors and to me is the carefully crafted words that you've come into the chamber with. And in particular, that you say no nuns broke into our homes to kidnap our children. We gave them up to what we convinced ourselves was the nuns' care and so on. I don't doubt your bona fides, a he-she, but I certainly doubt your judgment in reading that out, a carefully crafted speech with a sentence like that in these circumstances. My question, please answer Where is the interim report that has sat with the Minister since September last year? On that, the Taoiseach appeared to come up short for words. Please don't insult the women of Ireland on International Women's Day and just answer the question, when is the interim report going to be published? Please confirm that the site and tomb will be sealed appropriately. Please stop talking about a memorial at this point, which is utterly premature, and deal with the facts and the issues that the representative organisations are asking you. At some stage... The government has to learn. Far from insulting the women of Ireland, uh, I want to stand by finding out answers to these particular problems and these particular questions. And it's beneath you to take that line, Deputy Connolly. Beneath you to take that line. Now, um, the Gardaí themselves have a duty here. Um, We'll certainly contact them if if that site is not sealed off already. I haven't read the interim report that Minister Zappone has. I'm quite sure she's in consultation with people about this. I see no reason why the report uh, cannot be published, the same as any other report. It may have to be in some redacted form. I don't know. I haven't seen it. I haven't read it. I'm quite sure the Minister will answer for that. But back to Tuesday evening and the last word here on Today FM when Matt Cooper spoke to Paul Redmond, the chairman of a survivors group of mother and baby home residents. Paul was raised by a loving couple in Stillorgan in Dublin, but he knew he'd been adopted. He discovered that he had been born in a mother and baby home in Castle Pollard in County Westmeath. At 13 days old, he and his mother were moved to another one, St. Patrick's in Dublin, where his mother was discharged immediately, but four days later Paul was given up for adoption. And he made an extraordinary but also undeniable argument about the scale of illegal adoptions that took place from mother and baby homes. Bear in mind the home in Tume operated from the 1920s up to 1961. 
in the mother and baby homes, the nuns simply felt, well, that's it. They're, they're just a bunch of illegitimate bastards and it doesn't matter if they lived or died. That attitude started to change in 1945 when the banished babies trade started because we were worth more alive than dead. That's why the mortality rate started to drop. That's why the 1952 Adoption Act was brought in a few years later to legitimise the, the banished babies trade and to legalise it so the nuns could send about 3,000 babies to America. And in today's money, raked in between 30 and 50 million euros. I mean, they were, we, we, we were suddenly money. That's why they started to care. Paul also talked about the process of trying to find his birth mother after one day simply cycling into the adoption board offices in the centre of Dublin and asking for details. On top of all of that, somehow Paul believes that he's one of the lucky ones. I spent 33 years uh, tracking her down. She she moved to a foreign country, married, so changed her name in, in a foreign country. She also changed the spelling of her first name. She she was, like a lot of, of the mothers, ashamed of what happened and, and purposefully hiding from what happened and never wanted to be traced. Uh, several social workers tried over the years. I finally did track her down. Finally had a 40-minute phone call with her about four years ago. Um, it, it was a very disturbing call. She um, She's clearly suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. She has massive memory blackouts for uh, for a lot of the time she was in Castle Pollard. She didn't know where Castle Pollard was. She didn't know the name of it. She can't remember anything about the place. She had no idea when my birthday was. Uh, I, I felt dreadfully sorry for the poor woman, and I was I was... It was very clear to me she couldn't deal with me or have a relationship. Um, how were so, you uh, with that? How was I? Obviously disappointed, but uh, at the same time, I, I have to respect her wishes. She asked me not to, to get in touch with her again, and I haven't four years later, and I won't either. Um, I, 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 the next contact I'll probably have is a phone call from some of my relatives, or from some of her family, my relatives, years down the road where I'll be told she's passed away. I mightn't even get that phone call, but but that's it. Um, that's that's the life of an adoptee, you know. All the happy clappy stories you see in the newspaper sometimes they're, they're a tiny proportion of the reality uh, of reunions for for our entire community. Um, and some of the more extreme elements of our community would refer to that as reunion in porn in the media um, which makes it sound like everybody kind of has a happy ending awaiting them the vast majority of us don't And indeed to another extent he is one of the lucky ones because the conditions at Manor House in Castle Pollard and at St Patrick's where he was given up are being looked at but of all the various county homes which existed dotted around the country as I said only a sample of four are currently being examined that's something which, on Thursday morning, Minister Catherine Zappone promised to reconsider. Deputies will know that the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes continues its work. You will also know that cases have been made that the terms of reference of this commission should be reviewed. I want to acknowledge the calls made since Friday for an expansion of the terms of reference to cover all institutions, agencies and individuals that were involved with Ireland's unmarried mothers and their children. I can commit to deputies that a scoping exercise will be carried out to examine this. As Minister, I will be announcing the detail of this exercise in the coming weeks. Zappone's speech, by the way, was a bit overlooked, including, I'll have to admit, in my own coverage on Today FM, because of some other stuff that was happening that morning. We'll come back to that later. But in truth, if there was due to be a set-piece speech delivered to express the government's shock and that of the nation, while also explaining clearly what was going to be done about it, Catherine Zappone's was that speech. We must acknowledge that what was happening in these institutions was not unknown. 
we must acknowledge that what was happening in these institutions was not without the support of many pillars in society. We must acknowledge that this very House debated legislation that allowed for those residing in institutions such as county homes to work for little or nothing in return for the so-called charity that was shown to them. Lest we contend that people did not know what was happening, let us remember that some members of this House spoke out against it. In the Finance Committee debates on the Health Bill 1952, which took place in July 1953, Deputy Kine condemned putting unmarried mothers in county homes to effectively involuntary labor as having revenge on her. While Deputy Captain Cowan described as absolute brutality the fact, as he described it, that they are not let out even. Now compare that very honest and very open acknowledgement that what happened in mother and baby homes was no secret to what the Taoiseach had said in the same chair two days previous. Yes, we're all shocked now. We're all shocked now. But, and bear with me because this is the last lengthy clip from Catherine Zappone, she also had an inventive way of possibly kick-starting a healing process for those who bore the brunt of such horrible treatment. In the coming days, as Minister, I will start a conversation with advocates, with historians and scholars specialising in transitional justice. The United Nations defines transitional justice as the set of approaches a society uses to try to come to terms with a range of large-scale past abuses. Transitional justice puts survivors and victims at the heart of the process. It commits to pursuing justice through truth. It aims to achieve not only individual justice, but a wider societal transition from more repressive times to move from one era to another. And taking a transitional justice approach means that we will find out and record the truth, ensure accountability, make reparation, undertake institutional reform, and achieve reconciliation. She went on to explain how similar approaches have been used for post-military regimes in Argentina and Chile, and even after apartheid in South Africa. It is, by the way, exactly the kind of approach that Sinn Féin has been looking for in Northern Ireland to heal the wounds after the Troubles. But just before we move on, one last final reminder of life in the homes. This came from Fianna Fáil's children's spokeswoman Anne Rabbit, who, as it happens, is a TD for Toome. This story will take almost three minutes to listen to, but please just give it the time. It is worth it. Last Friday, I rang Tommy. Tommy is Tommy Ward from Kyle Brack, Lockray, County Galway. Tommy was on the front page of the Irish Times on Saturday. Tommy last night described himself as one of the lucky ones. He was fostered out. We do little discussions about the foster children from the mother and baby homes. Tommy was five and a half years of age when he was removed in a van and brought to his new foster parents. Tommy reflects today on the sadness of what has emerged because he sees those babies as his brothers and sisters. They were his brothers and sisters. They were his family and that was the institution in which Tommy grew up until he was five and a half years. Tommy 
never seen a cow or a sheep till he dawned to Woodford. Tommy knew no form of love or appreciation till he came to Woodford. But see, when we reflect back on society and we reflect back on government and we reflect back on who had a role, we all had a role. Because, see, Tommy was fostered and an allowance was paid for Tommy, who paid the allowance. Tommy's foster home had inspections, of which they knew they were going to have the inspections. But who did the inspections? Where are those records? Because there are records. So now we have an allowance and we have records of inspections. But guess what else happened to Tommy? When Tommy hit 18 years of age, Tommy was given the price of a bicycle. Who gave the price of the bicycle? The bicycle was to allow him so as he could take up an apprenticeship. Fortunate for him, he said he didn't like carpentry and they looked favourably upon him and allow him to become a mechanic. Tommy is one of the lucky ones. Tommy has advocated for years for this. Today, Minister, he thanks you and he thanks your commission for highlighting it. For the first time in his life, his voice has been heard. And that he is grateful for. And if that's the tale of someone who counts themselves as one of the lucky ones, if he was a lucky one, then what, literally what in the name of God, could have been done to the rest? 100 to 102 Today FM. Just on a little bit of a tangent here, by the way, the minister responsible for the mother and baby homes, as you've been hearing, is the children's minister, Catherine Zapone. And it's worth bearing in mind again what Enda Kenny said, Oskwelga, about not wanting to cut across the Commission's work. Yet that evening word had filtered out that Zapone was considering scoping out the inquiry, and by Thursday morning, as you've heard, she was now confirming it. Now, that significantly contradicts what Enda Kenny had told the doll, albeit in a language that Catherine Zapone doesn't understand and can't speak, only a few days previous. And cast your mind back to last week, when Enda Kenny was in the doll discussing the row on water charges. He flew a kite suggesting that while Fine Gael wouldn't put its own name to legislation which it believed to be illegal, he wouldn't stop the opposition from doing so. Only that night, Simon Coveney then spoke to the Irish Times and ruled out that prospect. It is a little bit of a micro-trend, but there does appear to be a habit now of ministers disregarding the indications that Enda Kenny has already given. Either that, or Kenny himself has now actively been left out of the loop. Here's another example. On Tuesday, the Irish Times led with a report that on Post's finances were so grim that not only would stamp prices have to be raised from 72% to a euro, that is a 40% increase that'll kick in in just a few days, but that a whole slew of post offices were going to have to close. And yet, here's what Enda Kenny told TDs when they raised it on Tuesday afternoon. The, um, the uh, perception that this is some sort of secret government plan is so far from the truth. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's what they call, it's what they call fake news. But that very same afternoon on Post's chief executive, David McRedmond, confirmed that it was basically all true. Whichever it is, it seems Fine Gael has definitely, in its mind at least, started to consciously uncouple itself from Enda Kenny. By the by, this week Simon Harris ruled himself out of the running to replace him as Fine Gael leader. He says he doesn't have the experience to put himself forward. It's only a couple of weeks since the 30-year-old minister, who's only been in cabinet for 10 months, was asking people not to count his age against him.
100 to 102 Today FM. The other major scandal of times past occupying minds in Leinster House and beyond this week was what's become known as the Grace case of a girl with profound intellectual disabilities who was left in a foster home for 20 years despite regular and ongoing fears of abusive conditions, including sex abuse, at that foster home. On Monday, RTE broadcast an interview with Grace's mother who had given her up into state care because she was young, single and simply not capable of looking after someone with Grace's needs. She explained that while for the first few years she was distant from Grace's care, in later years she regularly inquired into how her daughter was doing. My understanding back then before all the allegations was that um, she was happy. She was attending her day services and um, she was just in a loving, caring home. And that made me happy knowing that she was happy. Because that's what I was made to believe. That's what I was always told. This was shocking for several reasons. The Divine Report released by the HSE last week outlined how Grace had only been removed in 2009 on her mother's instructions after being sent to A&E with serious bruising. That was 20 years after she had first been left in that foster family's care. But the mother had already been consulted 10 years previously, back in 1999, about what to do with Grace. And at that stage, Grace had already shown regular bruising and a black eye, and there were already concerns about allegations of more sexual abuse in the same home. And yet, back then, 10 years earlier, Grace's mother hadn't been told. It was hardly any surprise that she rejected the apology from the HSE. I don't accept their apology. I don't trust them. I don't trust what they have to say. The past nine years have been a living hell for me. And that's the only way I can describe it. And it's still still that way. Meanwhile, it emerged over the weekend that in the midst of all this, the HSE hadn't been in any rush to release the Divine Report, which was completed back in 2012. Now, bear in mind the HSE had said that it couldn't discipline its own employees who were responsible for the failures in the Grace case until that report had been released. But the This Week programme on RTE did an FOI request and they discovered that the HSE had not asked the Gardaí about even getting permission to release that report until 2015. And in fact, the first contact with Gardaí about releasing it only came just as the Public Accounts Committee had heard about the document and asked the HSE whether it could see a copy. The HSE said that didn't mean it wasn't cooperating with Garda inquiries in the meantime, but the Public Accounts Committee Chairman Sean Fleming wasn't exactly thrilled. He believed that what the HSE had said now directly contradicted the evidence it had given to PAC only last year. Was there a conspiracy by the HSE to conceal information? I don't think so. I just think it was gross and total incompetence, which is actually insufficient and is not good enough and there's no way to deal with cases like this. And that, in my opinion, is also... a serious maladministration by the HSE. When it came to a dull debate a few days later, however, Finnegale's John Deasy, who, like Fleming, was an ordinary member of the PAC at the time, wasn't quite so sure. They told us that the people who decided to keep Grace in placement in 96 had all retired. They had not. They told us that the, the Gardaí had stopped them publishing the report. The Gardaí had not. They told us they apologised to Grace and her mother. They had not. So was this a conspiracy, a cover-up? Yes, it was. The PAC's chairman at the time, John McGuinness, was also concerned about the idea of his committee being misled, but that came second to his concerns about the treatment of others in the home. He gave specific examples of someone else that was kept in the home. Bear in mind, when he talks about 1992, that's 17 years before Grace was removed. You might find some of what you're about to hear pretty difficult to listen to. When she took her child out of that care, 
She then had to seek care in Northern Ireland because the South Eastern Health Board wouldn't support her. How disgusting is that? And she's not going to be included in this report. And let's put real words on it. She was battered, bruised. She was sexually abused, financially abused, and sexually abused anally, so that today that woman has a life of pain and suffering, and you're not going to investigate her case. We should be ashamed of ourselves. Now, all of this was being raised because the terms of reference for an inquiry into Grace was being approved by Cabinet on Tuesday, after being brought by the junior minister, Finian McGrath. Now, bear in mind, because this is a minority government, the terms of reference for any proposed inquiry can easily be amended by the opposition if there's enough clamour to do so. But in the Dole, you can't just propose and amend things on the hoof. Things need to be submitted in good time. There's fair procedure. You need to give people notice of a possible vote being called. And awkwardly, someone in the Department of Health didn't seem to do a very good job sending the terms of reference around. In fact, when Finian McGrath spoke to me on Thursday afternoon, just a few hours before TDs were meant to debate them, the terms of reference hadn't actually been released. So when he assured me that the cases of other people who also resided in the foster home would be looked at, I couldn't prove him wrong. There has been some misinformation over the last uh, day or two on this particular issue. Uh, terms, uh, the terms of reference, in section 10 there, there's a section dealing with the public interest and also in section C in the overview. And essentially, they are saying that they, they, then we can move on then and deal with those other issues as well. Because I am not going to exclude anybody. I'm not going to leave out anybody, uh, any family or any person with disability where allegations are involved. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to focus on Grace first because I don't want this to go on for a long, long time. But when the terms of reference did finally emerge, by which time most TDs simply didn't have the time to propose amendments, it turns out that wasn't actually the case at all. The inquiry would look into the handling of grace and the various issues around it, but the only consideration of other victims would be literally that, to consider them, and outline what further inquiries might be needed. In other words, this was an inquiry with a view to setting up another inquiry. It was hardly any wonder that John McGuinness was as upset as he was. You are being told that we are further abusing these families and these individuals because we're neglecting to take on board what the whistleblowers actually said, what Dignam actually said. And if we pass this in this house, we should be ashamed of ourselves. I certainly won't support it. Eventually, with it becoming increasingly clear that the government could be on course for an embarrassing defeat over a very sensitive subject, Finian McGrath relented. It was always my intention that there would be a second phase to this commission to investigate the care and decision-making in respect of others as well as grace. Nobody will be excluded. And I say again, Laskin Corla, nobody will be excluded. He went away and got the Cabinet to revise the terms of reference in a rare event on Wednesday night, a so-called incorporeal meeting, where the Cabinet basically meets by phone. They agreed to amend the terms of reference so that the treatment of others would now explicitly be included, albeit in a second module. Grace would still get the first attention, but the same inquiry would then move into other business. And it seemed like everything was now going quite smoothly. That is, at least until the PAC got back involved. Remember, it's now been proven quite plainly that a lot of what the HSC had told TDs a year ago wasn't actually true. And as it happened... On Thursday morning, the HSE's Director-General, Tony O'Brien, was back in front of the PAC again, albeit to talk about other issues. And so Sean Fleming started out with a fairly modest request to iron out those disputes. All I'm asking you today is, 
in view of the conflicting information in the public arena and what you stated at a previous public accounts committee, I want you to come back as urgently as possible within seven days to clarify the accuracy or otherwise of your statement to the previous public accounts committee and the reasons and the information you used to arrive at those conclusions. The idea was raised that he could come back at another time, perhaps the next week or the week after, and answer the questions. But then Catherine Connolly again made a very good point. If the Dáil was about to set up a commission to inquire into the Grace case and the HSE's role in it, then O'Brien would be in some legal bother. He wouldn't be able to give the PAC the same evidence he was about to give now behind closed doors to an inquiry. What has come out here today and the issues that have been raised, in addition to other concerns that we had already in the Dáil in relation to the inadequacy of the terms of reference, it would be a com- do a complete injustice to okay. the situation, to, sorry now, to go ahead with terms of reference this week in the Dáil without matters being clarified. Okay. This led the PAC to a quandary and led to some quite extraordinary events. Tony O'Brien was sent back out of the room, as were the journalists and the public, and the committee met in private to consider whether it should ask for the Grace inquiry to be delayed. In fact, Fleming was actually sent to try and hunt down Finian McGrath and raise the prospect with him himself. Eventually he came back without an agreement to delay the inquiry, but there would be one final chance for the HSE to set the record straight. What we're formally just looking for a commitment from, that within seven days you will supply information to the committee in writing in relation to the previous evidence presented to the committee, and within a further seven days you'll be back in person to discuss the matter with the committee. Is that a yes? Yes. That's a yes. And so Finian McGrath could finally go and get the doll to rubber stamp his new proposals and get the whole thing up and running. It is time now to move beyond being shocked and appalled at the uncovering of, of one scandal after another and realise that we have the power to effect change to protect the vulnerable so that health professionals, the public and all of the citizens have confidence that vulnerable people in care will be protected appropriately and better. It's still far from perfect, though. This new commission will be led by Marjorie Farley, a respected senior counsel with prosecution experience based in Cork. So now we'll have a legal commission being run by a barrister who's being asked to investigate the circumstances of things which are already the subject of three previous reports, two of which were written by barristers. It's a fairly Irish solution to an Irish problem. There is one thing of note about this new Grace inquiry, by the way. Among the things it's looking at is the role of Michael Noonan, who was Minister for Health back in 1996. After a decision was made to remove Grace, the family wrote to Noonan lobbying to have the decision overturned. He passed the letter onwards to a junior minister who gave it to the health board and the decision was later overturned. The inquiry is going to look into whether this was in any way out of the ordinary or whether it could be deemed an intervention. Noonan, as you heard on last week's pod, denies any wrongdoing. But it's not been a very good week for him. On Wednesday, the Public Accounts Committee passed a report on the sale of NAMA's Northern Ireland loans, which will accuse him of acting inappropriately when it is published next Tuesday. That's going to lead to another commission of investigation. He's now under scrutiny over Grace. And Noonan's conduct has also been looked at by a third commission into the sale of certain assets at IBRC. That's the former Anglo-Irish bank. And at a time when Noreen O'Sullivan is facing her own demands to stand down, or at least stand aside as guard commissioner while a tribunal examines her behaviour, it's so unusual that so little has been mentioned about Noonan having to do the same. Pascal Donoghue was asked about this on Friday morning. Michael Noonan has been an anchor of this government and performs a superb uh, role as Minister for Finance. And he uh, is also the minister that he himself made the decision to go in and participate in a public accounts hearing. 
in relation to Project Eagle and other matters. He himself decided to take uh, what was then quite an unprecedented step and go in and answer all questions in relation to the matter. And it's typical of the way in which he has engaged fully in any questions in relation to his brief and discharged all of his duties to the government and to the country in an excellent manner. He's a credible minister, he's a credible barista. Look, he's subject to three separate commissions in question. There have been questions around the Garda Commission on whether she can uh, stay in her position, and she's subject to one. He's now subject to three. Uh, and for a minister that has the breadth of responsibility that Minister Noonan does, who has participated in a number of briefs over his career, uh, of course, uh, work that we do and decisions that we make are always going to be subject to scrutiny. And that's the way it should be. A mark of the healthy Oireachtas and political system that we want is the ability of the Oireachtas to ask questions about the performance of ministers now and in the past. Uh, and what Michael has shown in that all of the duties that he has been given to at different points he has discharged all of them in an exemplary manner. Speaking of Noreen O'Sullivan, by the way, she was in the spotlight again on Thursday morning when Morris McCabe issued a statement calling on her to stand aside during the tribunal. In reality, the only reason that she hasn't been forced to do so, even though the policing authority aren't sure about her position, is because Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are happy for her to remain there for the time being. But how convenient then, having fudged the decision for a year on which six Garda stations to reopen on a pilot basis... That she, on Friday morning it emerges that she's decided to choose Step Aside, thereby honouring a key campaign pledge of Shane Ross. How convenient indeed. 100 to 102 Today FM. It's also been a busy week on one of the country's major hot potato issues, abortion. Last weekend the Citizens' Assembly heard from 17 groups advocating on either side of repealing the Eighth Amendment. Now we'll deal with the Assembly in more depth when it's finishing its work in a few weeks, but in passing we should mention one important legal submission – One argument that was made that there are other parts of the Constitution which may still give the unborn a right to life, and therefore getting rid of the Eighth Amendment wouldn't necessarily clear the way for a more liberal regime on abortion. But as I said, we'll come back to that at some point in the future. In the meantime, there were also debates inside, and literally outside, the gates of Leinster House. On Wednesday lunchtime, thousands of people took to the streets of Dublin in what was called a strike for repeal, to coincide with International Women's Day. Later that evening, there were duelling demonstrations gathered inside Leinster House. Inside the gates on Tuesday night, the Dáil debated a bill from Breed Smith of People Before Profit, who wanted to get rid of the 14-year jail term for people guilty of illegal abortion and instead replace it with a fine of €1. Euro. The bill was comprehensively defeated by 81 votes to 26, with Sinn Féin abstaining, but what was more interesting is the fact that there were some unusual TV cameras used for the debate. Three TDs from the Anti-Austerity Alliance People Before Profit wore the sweaters that you might know, the black ones with the slogan written in white letters, Repeal. But you couldn't see the slogan on camera because the TDs, even when they were the ones speaking, were only shown from a side angle. Ruth Coppinger was one of the TDs. She wasn't impressed. Minister, I am wearing a repeal shirt um, and I hope that the censorship that's going on right now in relation to the camera work, uh, not showing that, by the way, will end. Uh, so there's a side, side angle now. I don't think we should be censoring the word repeal in the doll. I think people should be able to, to state that. Also unimpressed was a pro-life independent TD, Matty McGrath, who queried with the last count Corla, Pat the Cope Gallagher, why the sweaters were even being allowed in the first place. I was stopped last week coming in with a daffodil. Well, if, you, if you spoke to me about the daffodil, then I would have said to you that uh, it isn't a political emblem. And I was stopped coming in yeah, with it. Yeah, but so. I, listen, 
And is, that, is that not a political dilemma? Let's get on with the debate. Is that not a political dilemma? Yeah, I don't know what they're appealing. This debate on abortion did spill over into other issues, however. The Taoiseach, shortly after his emotive words about Tume, launched into an ad hoc critique of the bill a few hours before it was actually being debated. He said that if we changed this law, the deputy would be saying that somebody kicks his pregnant partner and kills the baby she's carrying and would only be guilty of a fine. If somebody kicks their pregnant part- partner, they're guilty of assault. They're not guilty of a fine. The Taoiseach doesn't seem to know the difference between abortion, assault and miscarriage. It's quite incredible. That was a slightly odd interpretation to take, something which Ruth Coppinger pointed out as much when the debate did get underway. Uh, You're changing legislation, which clearly is enshrined in the Constitution here, means that, for instance, you are saying that if somebody kicks their pregnant partner kills the baby they're carrying is to be guilty of a fine of one euro. The only political hiccup for the government was that it couldn't immediately get Catherine Zappone on side to vote down the bill. She wanted more legal advice before voting down a bill which reduces the penalty but still makes it illegal to have an abortion. But she was brought back on board and the government did survive perfectly intact. And as I said, we'll no doubt come back to this topic a little more in future weeks when the Assembly nears a conclusion. 100 to 102 Today FM. A quick stop to mention Vera Toomey, who this week completed her second walk from Cork to Dublin in a bid to get sanctioned for a cannabis-based drug for her daughter Ava, who has severe epilepsy. She can't get the drug sanctioned in Ireland yet, partly because of a bit of a chicken and egg scenario. This was partly explained by Enda Kenny in the Dáil on Tuesday. Even if you introduce a bill and it becomes law, the requirement, even in compassionate circumstances, is that there be a prescription uh, in cases like this of a paediatric uh, uh, neurosurgeon uh, available. So whether you do it on compassionate grounds or on legal grounds, that's a requirement. When you are on your walk, if you go into a pharmacy and you look for something that you don't have a prescription for, you won't get it unless it's on the, uh, on the freely available to everybody else. And this applies in the case of, of um, serious issues like this, young, like this young child who has uh, serious challenges. But that's the process, Deputy. But literally as he was speaking, Vera Toomey was outside with a large crowd of well-wishers and she said she wasn't leaving. There are mothers over in, in Holland and mothers over in Germany and mothers in other countries around Europe that can get access to um, necessary medicine for their children. Well, then there's mothers in Ireland that need to get access to medicine for their children too. And it's Simon Harris's responsibility to organise that in Egypt. After a few hours outside Leinster House, Vera Toomey eventually got a meeting with the Health Minister Simon Harris, which went on for over four hours. Afterwards, she expressed some satisfaction. She said some doors had been opened and there now were other options on the table. But by Friday, she wasn't so convinced again. There was nothing that we would like better than to have a good result for Ava. I would say the only thing that I would that I would value more or as much as getting a result for Ava would be that the other people that are out there in this country that are looking for this medication for their pain, that they would be allowed to gain access to it too. And all of this very delicate subject was made slightly more complex by the fact that the state's chief medical officer, Tony Holohan, says cannabis-based medication should be allowed. I can assure you that there is no impediment, there is no view in the Department of Health, and I can certainly tell you no view on the part of the minister or the government or anybody else, that if, if a doctor believes that this is the appropriate treatment for a particular person, and that doctor has the appropriate qualifications to make that assessment, 
and that doctor is in a position to monitor that person on an ongoing basis, we'll be very happy to support that decision. But, and it's a big but, he says Ava Toomey can have her drugs if only someone would prescribe them. I can assure you that there is no impediment. There is no view in the Department of Health, and I can certainly tell you no view on the part of the minister or the government or anybody else, that if, if a doctor believes that this is the appropriate treatment for a particular person, and that doctor has the appropriate qualifications to make that assessment, and that doctor is in a position to monitor that person on an ongoing basis, we will be very happy to support that decision. Which brings us back to a bit of a chicken and egg scenario, because only cannabis drugs of a certain potency are actually allowed under the current law, and the only ones that work for Ava exceed that threshold, and nobody's going to prescribe a drug for her that they know can't be dispensed. Ireland 101. 100 to 102 Today FM. We should also take a pit stop and mention a report from the state spending watchdog issued on Thursday. Now, if ever there was a week to compound Ireland's frustration in the way things used to be, this was it. The Comptroller and Auditor General issued a report on the amount that the state has paid out to victims of abuse in residential institutions run by religious groups. Now, it's important to say from the outset that the groups we're talking about here are not the Catholic Church in a straightforward sense, just like, in fact, they weren't when we're talking about mother and baby homes. We're talking about religious groups who ran residential homes into which people would be sent by courts or what have you. Now, regularly, those people, as we are now more than familiar, were abused in those institutions. And back in 2002, the state set up a redress scheme. Church groups signed up to pay €128 million to the state in costs, and they thought that that would mean 50-50, that the final costs would be about a quarter of a billion, and the church was covering half. But since then, the costs have risen to €1.5 billion, six times what they were originally thought to be. The religious groups have only stumped up €107 In 2009, they offered another €353 million Euro in cash and property, but so far only €85 million of that has actually materialised. And in fact, another €127 million in property has actually been taken off the table by the Christian Brothers, who wanted to give the state 50-50 ownership of nearly 50 school playing fields. The state said that that was no good to it because those grounds are already used by schools anyway, so transferring the ownership was no good to them. And so now the brothers are transferring the ownership of those pitches into a trust where the state will own none of them. Education Minister Richard Bruton. Well, I think the truth is that the 2002 agreement entered into by the then Fianna Fáil government has tied our hands on that. And this, the government has looked on numerous occasions at legal avenues who, which might be open to them. And they aren't there. That's been the advice. There aren't those opportunities to compel. Uh, so we are in the realm, and Rory Quinn himself sought to apply moral pressure to get an outcome there. But as we heard uh, in the case of, of, of one of the orders that was had a very, very disappointing outcome. Uh, so I think this is a question of continuing pressure. Uh, but of course we will uh, examine any options that are available to us. But the legal advice as of now is that they are extremely limited. He says he's going to meet with the brothers to try and stop them taking the pitches off the table and to try and get them to stump up more. No doubt there'll be a lot of people watching. 100 to 102 Today FM. If you're abroad, by the way, or you're somewhere elsewhere out of the loop and you're wondering, wasn't there a big row about water last week? Yes, yes, there was. But the people involved have fudged pretty much everything and they've asked for another few weeks to get some independent legal advice on sensitive issues like charging and refunds. Their new deadline is April the 14th. We'll just have to bide our time and see if there's a Good Friday agreement then that can bring peace in our time. There will be, by the way, another national water demonstration on Saturday, April the 8th to try and put one last injection of energy into the anti-water charges campaign. As ever, it's another dispute of some sort kicked into the long grass. 100 to 102 Today FM. 
So, the end of a week which, to be quite honest, has been really hard work. None of us can be all that surprised that terrible things happened in religious-run institutions. As I said, that's hardly a secret. But what's made the last few days so difficult to cover is the fact that the state was complicit at every turn in those abuse cases or in the horrors of mother and baby homes. And that's before you get to the case of Grace, where religion plays no part at all. Where that's literally just the Irish state being aware several times that this very, very vulnerable Irish citizen was in harm's way and doing absolutely nothing to stop it. Um, To be honest, earlier in the week I half-jokingly wondered whether I should have actually given this podcast another name, whether it shouldn't be that was the week, but rather this bloody country for all the things that it seems to be getting wrong. Fine Gael's Frank Fian made an interesting speech in the Shannon this week about the role that the church plays in all of this. As a state, we've been set up since 1922, and in Article 44, which was written in 1937, we gave a special relationship to the Catholic Church in our constitution. It was taken out in 1973, I think. It was deleted. But we had a special relationship with the Catholic Church. That was the people of Ireland. It was the political system of Ireland which effectively encompassed nearly 100%. And anybody who didn't fit in went to the United Kingdom or wherever. And I remember growing up, uh, you know, if you misbehaved in your own town, I remember judges would send people over to London, to England. You know, they felt it was a different place. But I just want to say is that there was a time when happiness wasn't really celebrated and where there was an acceptance of suffering in childhood and hardship. And I think now we must reflect now of where we are, where, you know, we can enjoy diversity and, 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 and we can try to work without forgetting the, 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 uh, the, the horrible things in the past, but we must look forward to the positive things. And, 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 and I really think we had an amnesia. Everybody had an amnesia. We forgot what didn't suit us. But remember this, we were the state. The state, the people that set up, the, the, they invited in the Catholic Church, they set up those institutions, and we were all culpable. But he's right. There's still an imprint of religious dogma on the state with legacies to this very day. It's only four years since Savita Halapanavar died because even though she was miscarrying, the constitution forbids doctors from giving her a termination. They had to leave her to miscarry for so long that she caught a fatal infection. It's only another couple of years since an asylum seeker was denied the right to travel abroad for an abortion and they were forced to carry a child conceived through rape that she didn't want until it was old enough to be induced from her. This is a state that struggles to set up inquiries to figure out what it is that our country has done wrong in the past and then we fudge our apologies about whether society was to blame or not. We have a parliament that can barely legislate, which, by the way, indefensibly, was late starting on Wednesday and Thursday. That's for debates on Shume and on the Grace case because they couldn't bother getting 20 people into the room in time to reach the minimum number for a dull debate. I'll say that again. Debates about the Grace case... Debates about the finding of human remains at a mother and baby home. You need 20 TDs in the room to start a debate. And both debates were delayed because they could not get just 20 TDs, an eighth of the doll, into the room in time. And that's the same doll which is now slower at legislating than pretty much any other parliament that anyone can remember. The only parliament that's worse at producing legislation is probably the one in Northern Ireland. And that doesn't even exist at the moment. We didn't even get to all the stuff in Stormont this week, by the way. We might get back to that next week or the week after. 
But maybe our parliament is so dysfunctional because we have a government that can't make any decisions. It sets up inquiries into things that are already inquired into. It constantly farms out contentious decisions and citizens' bodies, despite having set up a previous one which reported back with loads of recommendations for referendums, most of which were simply ignored then anyway. We have a state that can't decide how to pay for water or whether it's even legally required to charge people to pay for water. We have a state that's incapable of housing refugees and asylum seekers in any kind of vaguely compassionate or humane way. We have a state which is barely even competent about housing its own citizens that has record numbers sleeping rough or in emergency accommodation, spending more and more and achieving less and less. We have a state that has more people on waiting lists for hospital appointments or longer A&E waiting times than ever before. It's a state that can not learn the lessons from previous reports into its own misbehaviour, whether that's in schools or in council chambers or in guard stations, and is incapable of putting those things right. It's a state which, for a few weeks, has even figured struggles to figure out how to inquire into itself. It's a state that has a quarter of a million empty homes and still has, as I said, more and more people sleeping in emergency accommodation or sleeping rough. It's a state that absolutely cannot allow the scars of its past to heal properly. And just because the church clause in the constitution is gone, it doesn't mean that there is no church imprint there. If you get a constitution or if you download a copy, it's available on constitution.ie. Even before you get to Article 1, which actually establishes Ireland in the first place, the Article 1 is what establishes the fact that there is an Irish state. You get a line where the Irish people acknowledge their obligations to their divine Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the first sentence of the preamble to the Constitution of Ireland reads, In the name of the most holy trinity, from whom is all authority, and to whom as our final end, all actions, both of men and states, must be referred. And then you go through the whole Constitution, and the final sentence, some kind of little epitaph at the bottom of the Constitution, says, Dochum glor dei agus honor neheren, for the glory of God and the honour of Ireland as if those two things are both equal goals and you need to achieve them both in equal measure. And at some point, those two things aren't compatible anymore. The church and its values, for better or worse, permeate every fibre of the existence of the Republic of Ireland itself, which in itself explicitly admits that it owes its very existence to God the Almighty. And it makes you wonder that if this state, as it's established, is so patently dysfunctional... Maybe it's not a government or a parliament, but actually the state itself that needs replacing. 100 to 102 Today FM. So that's our lot for this week. Next week's podcast will be slightly different, if indeed there actually is one at all. Uh, I'm off this weekend to follow Enda Kenny on his farewell tour, perhaps, of the United States. Uh, It's a hectic eight-day schedule between Philadelphia, Boston, Washington and New York. And the time for a podcast might be fairly light, but I'll see what I can manage. In the meantime, gav at todayfm.com for all of your feedback and all of your thoughts. And as ever, thank you very much for listening. I hope to see you soon. I'm Gavin Riley. And that was the week. One hundred to one oh two today, FM.